Welcome to the My Faith Votes Podcast. I'm Megan West. On today's episode, we're talking with pro-life advocate and passionate voice for the unborn, Seth Gruber. Our conversation is enlightening, eye-opening, and also empowering to give you a better perspective on how to be a winsome and proactive pro-life Christian in today's world. Join me with Seth Gruber on today's podcast. Excited to bring our guest in today who's going to be talking about pro-life issues from a really unique perspective. He is um, a speaker. He is passionate. He is so well-versed in helping Christians and those in the pro-life movement be really equipped and motivated and to know how to speak on the topic of pro-life, especially at a time that's so crucial in our nation. So would you please welcome Seth Gruber to our time together. Hey, Seth, great to see you. You too, Megan. Thanks for having me on. Well, I love that you are so passionate about this topic, but more so that you're very well versed in it. And your mission really is to equip people to be able to speak on the topic of pro-life issues in a very winsome but um, provocative at times way, but also just to be able to stand up to the arguments that are coming at us nonstop within the pro-life movement. So give a little bit of background as far as why this is a passion of yours and what you're currently doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we're, we're doing very similar work, right? In the sense that we're, we're trying to wake up the bride of Christ hmm. uh, to stand in the gap um, on behalf of truth, uh, on behalf of preborn children. And uh, anyone who peruses your website will see how central the issue of life is to the hearts of the people that and my case, those, and I think that's for an obvious reason. I think it's because if we don't get the right to life right, we won't get any other right. Right, that is the most fundamental right from which all of our other natural rights flow. And so that's why the issue is so central. And of course, we can dive into more of kind of what that means exactly. But I'm the West Coast Director for Life Training Institute, and we're a small but elite team of pro-life speakers across the country. And our goal is just to equip the next generation of Christian leaders, uh, like the posterity of our nation, um, and Christian leaders, lay people, young people, to be a persuasive and gracious voice for the unborn, to bring moral and spiritual clarity to an issue that sometimes is almost as morally convoluted in the minds of the church as it is in the minds mm-hmm. of the culture. That's a big problem. Right. Um, and and as I'm sure you would agree, is sort of a problem that my faith votes has put their thumb on as well, is that so many of these issues that we're seeing in our country are happening because of an absence of moral teaching from the pulpit. This very sinister, strange, and somewhat new lie that we're not supposed to be political, that, that there's no room for the church to put their faith in the politics, despite the fact that they'll tell you to put your faith everywhere. Um, that you shouldn't have a private faith, but rather it should be worn on your sleeve, except except it, don't wear it on your sleeve in the political sphere. Uh, it's just a very, very strange mess, and, and, it's, and it's yielded a lot of consequences, because the very institution that can keep government to account, the church, and if you know anything about American history, you'll know that that was very much the role of the church for a long time. And our leaders, who, by the way, most of them, at least on one side of the political aisle, hate the church, uh, understand that the church is kind of actually the only institution that can hold government to account. Um, and you'll see that in, if you study history, right? You'll see the communist regime uh, tend to kind of target churches and Christians first <laughs> before they take power. 
Um, and, and yet the institution that can hold government to account is silent because we say, for the sake of our witness, um, we can't talk about politics. Um, well, that silence has consequences, and nowhere is that silence more deadly than the issue of abortion. Um, these are children created in the image of God, created in the image of, by the way, Megan, the prenatal God, um, our Savior who entered human history in a womb that he once knit together uh, to redeem mankind from their sins. And apparently, uh, we can't bubble a ballot. Uh, we can't pencil in a circle on a ballot that could quite literally end the genocide of baby image bearers who dwell in the same location that our savior entered human history in, a womb. Uh, and that, that, that entry into human history, we just celebrated last. Um, and so as I said last month, you cannot celebrate the advent of the prenatal God. Uh, you cannot celebrate Christ's journey from womb to world, from uterus to Mary's arms, while simultaneously voting to murder babies in that same location created in the image of that same God. Well, and I want to pick up a little bit more on that because what I think has been really interesting to me and actually a little bit confusing is that I've seen a lot of Christian friends step out of the realm of being pro-life and even saying, you know what, I think it's better to be pro-choice. And I've been so confused by that going, wow, clearly that's something that the church is missing out on when you've got Christians who are saying, Maybe it's better to be pro-choice. Are you seeing that within the work that you're doing? Yes, I, no, I absolutely am. There's a few different myths that get shared from these new woke evangelicals on the issue of abortion. And one of them is that there is no contradiction between their faith and their pro-choice position. Okay, so that would be the more heretical form of that, right? The more like truly evil, demonic form of that is that somehow you can actually syncretize, combine, marry your belief that unborn children should be killed through point of birth and funded by the public dole, and your faith, which says that you worship uh, an unborn child, <laughs> the prenatal God who entered human history in a womb. So that would be the most nasty form of that, of sort of that myth. Um, I won't spend too much time on that. I mean, what I would say is that people who say that um, are not Christian. Okay, um, now people say, well, you can't say that, that you can't judge people's faith. How dare you do that? Only God can judge their salvation. And my, I guess my only question for them, Megan, would be, um, would you say the same thing about Christians in the 1850s who were campaigning for racist Democrats to protect the institution of slavery? Um, would you say that we couldn't question their faith? Um, would you say the same thing about German churches in 1940 who far from... Uh, speaking out against the Holocaust, far from being silent on the Holocaust, they were actually actively using their pulpit to condone and partner with the Nazi regime. I mean, of course you would question those people's faith. And so um, I guess that's all I'll say about that. If freeborn children are human beings and you believe in human rights and human rights have to be granted to all humans, uh, you, can't just, you can't just deny that to an entire class of human beings and say, well, it's just my new woke faith. Um, the second sort of political myth that's shared in response to your question would be these people who say, and you know this one, right? I'm, you see, I'm personally pro-life, Megan. Mm. Um, I would personally never kill my child. Um, and I, I would probably ask my daughter not to uh, kill my own grandchild if she was pregnant. So, you know, that's what our family believes. Um, and maybe that's because we're Christians and we worship the prenatal God. Um, but, you know, I shouldn't impose my, my personal or religious pro-life beliefs on 
others. Um, and so because I'm whole life and not pro-life, I'm actually voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the most radical pro-abortion political ticket in American history that makes Barack Obama look a pre like a pragmatic pro-choice moderate. Um, because, you know, I shouldn't impose my beliefs on others. That would be sort of the, the other form of that, of that myth of this sort of pro-choice Christian that you're talking about. Right. And what I say is that you cannot be anti-slavery and vote for slavery. Similarly, you cannot be pro-life and vote for abortion. Um, this is, this is a ridiculous myth. And unfortunately, it's, it's actually finding a comfortable home in the minds of many American Christians and even whole-scale congregations. Um, and again, this is happening because of a sort of absence of moral teaching from the pulpits, clarifying these issues, discipling them, right? Isn't that what the Great Commission says? Create disciples and then teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Um, there's supposed right. to be an application of the gospel to what's happening in the world. And this would be called a, a Christian worldview, right? How does the gospel, um, rather, what is it about the gospel that's supposed to impact the rest of our lives and help us make sense? happening. And so these people insist, um, Megan, that we should, um, we should set aside absolute evils like abortion in order to prevent contingent evils. Now, contingent evils might be evils that may or may not be wrong, right? They may, they may be things that may or may not be wrong. For example, war, right? Is there such a thing as a just war? Uh, yes, I think so. I think it was a good thing that the Allied troops Mm -hmm. uh, fought Adolf Hitler. Um, did we have to kill people to do that? I guess we had to kill people to do that. Um, but that, nobody would argue, well, very few would argue that that was an absolute evil, that America sinned in an absolute way by, you know, murdering Nazis because we were trying to, to save the world. I mean, it, it, so that would be a contingent evil, right? Similarly, poverty might be a contingent evil. Is poverty in and of itself a moral wrong? No, I, I don't think you or I, Megan, would walk up to someone on the street who's homeless and has nothing left and say, you disgusting sinner, you, <laughs> right? I mean, they're not, they're not sinning by being homeless. That's not like a moral evil. Now, poverty, homelessness might be the result of other moral evils, right? Um, but it's not in and of itself an absolute evil. Okay, why do I make this sort of distinction? Abortion is an absolute evil. Abortion yeah. is, the, is the murder of an innocent human being without proper justification. What would be other absolute evils? Spousal abuse, okay? Child abuse, slavery, okay? These were absolute evils. And so what these woke Christians are telling us to do, Megan, and this, this is scandalous when you phrase it this way, but I think it's the, the correct way to phrase it, is that they are asking the church to overlook absolute evils, which by the way, it's legalized, it's state-sanctioned, and you fund it with your tax dollars, abortion. Just overlook absolute evils in order to prevent contingent evils. And, and this is the, the sort of a, the myth of the whole life person, Megan, right? I'm not pro-life, I'm whole life. You probably heard that. And so they say, yeah, yes, I'm opposed to slaughtering image bearers in a womb. I wouldn't, you know, kill my own child or tell my daughter to kill my grandchild. But, you know, universal health care and universal basic income matter. <laughs> right? That's a pro-life issue because those people, sometimes they struggle to pay their medical bills. And so that's a life issue. And so vote to murder babies in order to improve quality of life outside the womb. If you think that savable babies are an acceptable sacrifice on the altar of your quality of life outside the womb, your moral compass is broken. And I don't trust you on any other moral issue. And my last comment would be this, Megan. The people who say that would never say this about the Holocaust or slavery. So 
This is what I call soft bigotry. Now, people don't like it when I use that kind of language, but we need to speak very clearly about these issues. When it comes to moral topics, we need to speak very clearly, and all the more so because the church has not spoken clearly on moral issues. A hard bigotry might be like a, just a full-blown racist, right? A hard bigotry would be like, I'm willing to, to publicly acknowledge that I think that you are less deserving of rights and dignity because of your melanin. I mean, that would be a very hard form of bigotry. A soft bigotry might be uh, a personally pro-lifer who says, I believe that children in the womb are human beings. Oh, wow. Oh, I mean, so you're admitting they're human. I believe that they're image bearers of God created in the image of my Savior. Oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. So, so we're in agreement. Oh, but I don't think they should deserve legal protection. Whoa. So, so you're saying that black-born brothers and sisters and Jewish brothers and sisters were intrinsically valuable enough to warrant political protection, but unborn biological humans apparently are not intrinsically valuable enough to warrant political protection. Because if they were, you wouldn't vote for the person or party whose platform includes the protection, advancement, and funding of the murder of those human beings. This is soft bigotry. So that's, I guess I would say, to the sort of the two forms of the pro-choice Christian. The person who frankly just admit it, admits it and says, yeah, murder babies and fund it. And then those who say, no, 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 I'm personally pro-life. Um, but we, I voted to keep it legal to kill babies. So no, actually, you're not pro-life. You're pro-choice as well. Because pro-life people don't vote to keep it legal to kill those they're trying to well, and I think you bring up two interesting facets. The number one thing that comes to mind is the power of words, because words have really changed the narrative on how people look at the pro-life or abortion movement, whether it's pro-abortion, pro-life, pro-choice. You know, speak to what you're seeing as far as how rhetoric has been used to change worldviews on the issue of pro-life. That's right. Yes, and this is what my friend John Stone Street at the Colton Center would call the power of normalization. Mm. And this is, this is something, frankly, that socialists and communists have understood for a millennia. And it's, by the way, something the left understands um, very well as well. And it's, it's, it's quite frustrating to me that the right, and I just broadly mean the only other sort of conservative option to the Democratic Party today, I'm not saying the Republican Party is perfect conservative institution that mirrors the jurisprudence of Lincoln. I'm just saying it's kind of the only conservative political option available to you to make a meaningful political difference. Um, this is something that we seemingly haven't understood as much. And, and it irks me to no end that conservatives will say things like, you know, well, I'm not really going to speak out against uh, LGBTQ um, legislation and transgender bathroom laws. And I'm going to call people by the pronouns that they prefer. Because if, if, if I say no, you know, and I say that my standard must be upheld in um, the face of your standard, then the left might come along and just say that I don't have the right to worship. Uh, and so to each his own, you do you, you know, it, it's just ridiculous. Every country has always had standards. And we've always understood the importance of words because words are merely a reflection of reality. They, they, re, they refer, they're pointers. It's like, this is the thing I'm talking about. So when we accept the, this, this lie that we can just redefine words, that men can be women, women can be men, that I should be, as the left, as you know, would love to do with actually to require that, that American citizens use the pronouns of, of 
wonderful image bearers of God, but who are mentally ill and think that they're the other gender, that we actually have to use their preferred pronoun. This is what breaks down a civilization in a society, because now we, we, we're not even referring to the same things. We're not even living in reality anymore. And the left knows that. I mean, read 1984. I mean, this is the playbook where every word has been rewritten. Every book has been eradicated, where two plus two equals five. And it's not enough that you believe it. It's not enough that you say it. Rather, you actually have to believe it. And, and so how do you accomplish that? How do you accomplish getting your political opponents to not just say what you want them to say, but to believe it? Mm. You repeat it over and over and over and over and over again, the power of normalization. And so we're seeing that happen even within, quote unquote, sort of conservative circles or squishy Republicans who are caving to using this type of language. And what, what might that language look like if it's applied to the issue of abortion? Reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. Okay, what in the world does that mean, Megan? It sounds great. It's like, well, yeah, I, I, well, I think, you know, I don't, maybe I wouldn't say people have a, a right to healthcare. I don't think healthcare is a natural right. But that's great if you have the option to healthcare and, okay, reproductive. So, like, so, oh, so like helping women uh, with better medical options when they're choosing to start a family, because that's what reproduction means. <laughs> I mean, if you were an alien visiting America, you were like, wow, wow, why would the GOP be against reproductive healthcare? What's wrong with those bigots? It's like, oh no, you mean you mean uh, taking forceps and ripping an arm off of a human in a womb that was designed to hold them from which you once came from, right? This is why Reagan said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. It's highly ironic. Um, and then I should fund it, okay? And then um, nurse practitioners, OBGYNs, and doctors should maybe just be compelled upon threat of career termination to perform or assist with abortion. Um, so yeah, that's what I meant by reproductive health care. What in the world are we talking about? And yeah. of course, I could give you plenty of other examples in the culture wars, but you know, specifically on abortion, because abortion is the litmus test of the republic, just as slavery was the litmus test of the republic in the 1850s, because it calls into question the very premises that this republic was built upon, natural rights. And that has to begin with the right to life. Um, this looks like... Um, Reproductive justice, as that ridiculously failed presidential candidate Julian Castro called it, um, that it's actually just to tear the limbs off of human citizens. Uh, women's rights. Um, wait, but um, our, our gender is dictated from the moment that we're conceived. So where are preborn women's rights? Oh, no, 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 not for them. Uh, so, I mean, I can just go through and through all of these euphemisms. Um, and the, the unwillingness of the church to stand up against this kind of language and call it the bigotry that it is. Because what's bigotry? Bigotry is discriminating against someone else for being different. Particularly if those differences are immutable characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is, it, is it discriminating against someone based off of things they have no control over, particularly nasty, like their gender or skin color? Well, the unborn has no control over their size, their level of development, their location, or their dependency on their mother. So yes, the pro-choice position is just pro-bigotry because it discriminates against an entire class of humans, unborn ones, based off of characteristics they have no control over. And if we don't stand up against this kind of language and say, no, that's a lie, because truth matters and words have meaning and words have power, um, then we're going to continue to watch the decaying of the culture in the next generation who accepts this type of language as not just normal, but a social good. Well, so we're living in this age of censorship now and just... In the last week, things have taken on a whole new level. So do you see more censorship? I mean, you faced it at Westmont College when you were a student there. Do you think we're going to see more censorship when it comes to pro-life 
people willing out to speak on the horrors of abortion and the potential censorship on social media or goodness, you know, media yep. outlets who just don't want to hear the other side. Yep. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, censorship is just, just top of the playbook in the left. And that is going to increasingly target um, pro-lifers. And let me just tie this together, this idea of censorship with our current political moment, okay? Um, I do not believe this election was uh, fair in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I do believe personally that, it, that it's a fraudulent stolen election. Now, again, just like unfortunately Trump's lawyers were unable to do, I can't, I can't prove that the fraud was to the level that it swung the election, um, but um, there's just too many irregularities for me to believe that it was, um, it was authentic. I'm not going to get into that, obviously, is what we're talking about. But assuming that there wasn't um, election fraud to the point that it was a stolen election, then we just we just voted for a vice president-elect who used her censorship to jail pro-lifers. So if you want to know what's coming, Christian, uh, in the next couple of years, assuming we don't retake the Senator of the House in 2022, and then four years if we don't. If you want to know what's happening, going to come in the next few years, Kamala Harris is Attorney General in California prior to her becoming a Senator. Um, rather than targeting the, the uh, Planned Parenthood who was exposed for selling dead baby body parts on the black market, breaking federal law, uh, targeted the whistleblowers, David Delighted and Sandra Merritt, who she threw in jail and who are still facing multi-million dollar lawsuits. Now, there has been no undercover journalist making in California history who has been criminally prosecuted for undercover journalism that exposed illegal activity, okay? We all understand that. That's why we like undercover journalism, right? Like, it's like who cares if the person being uh, recorded didn't give their consent to be videoed or recorded? Like, who cares? Like, you just got exposed, bro. Like, we, we recognize like undercover journalism is actually a good thing. So the Planned Parenthood is breaking federal law, selling the limbs of children that they already profited off of dismembering on the black market to profit again off of their off of their limbs. And this breaks federal law. And so at the time that Kamala Harris was prosecuting pro-lifers for doing this, um, Planned Parenthood was lining her pockets with massive political campaign donations. <laughs> so it's not an overstretch to say that Kamala Harris was prostituting her attorney general duties to her political campaign donors. Okay, so now this might not be digital censorship, um, but that is a form of censorship because she raided David Delighted's apartment to um, steal any other recordings he might have had of those um, conversations with high-ranking Planned Parenthood corporate officials. Okay, so now this woman will likely become president because no, no, none of us actually think that Joe Biden is going to be president for four years. She has a further left voting record than Bernie Sanders and is the most radical pro-abortion politician alive right now in the country and therefore the most radical in American history. So yes, we're gonna see censorship um, spike up on levels we've never seen before against pro-lifers. Um, and of course the videos that they exposed were censored as well. And that was back in 2015, 2014. So um, pro-lifers need to get ready for what's coming and the conservative movement writ large may need to prepare for, for actual old school street activism again. Um, because we may not have the platform to get out the ideas we want to articulate on social media. Right. Well, and yeah, so we, what some would say is going from the most pro-life administration to the most pro-abortion administration, practically, because they're now in office, what do we do? How do we live out in a pro-life space as a Christian 
to stand up for the unborn when we know that there's going to be opposition faced and the headwinds are going to be much stronger, especially in the next two to four years? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Great, great question, Megan. What's our marching orders, if you will? For many, those marching orders are simply to begin obeying them in the first place. Because much of the church in America has never adopted any type of marching orders. So let me use another word for that, responsibility, to end the genocide of baby image bears. I mean, Francis Schaeffer once said, Megan, that every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. And the same people who say that, no, abortion's not happening with the permission of the church, that's not true. Because... Our responsibility is the Great Commission. Uh, our responsibility is not to end abortion. You know, you can't show me a Bible verse that says, thou shalt end abortion. And so, um, therefore, abortion is not happening on the watch of the church or with our permission. Well, the same people who say that would turn right around when they make and say that. But with slavery in the 1850s, yeah, slavery happened on the watch of the church, and it was their responsibility to end it. And also, the Holocaust happened on the watch of German churches who had a responsibility to end it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's the same soft bigotry. It's the same that pre-born image bearers are not intrinsically valuable enough to warrant the involvement of Christians to protect them. Um, so, for, so for some of you who are watching this, your responsibility is just uh, to obey Christ in the first place. It's, it's, it's to, for, for the first time in your life, maybe, is to step onto the battlefield, to get off the bench, and to advocate for the lives of the least among us. I believe that the church could end abortion if they wanted to. Um, and as you know, with the 95 million Christians in America, at least who identify with the Christian faith, um, and about half of the Christians who are registered to vote don't vote, yeah. and we have tens of millions of Christians who aren't even registered to vote. And so if the pulpits had been preaching moral truth and the application of the gospel to current day events and what that means for the responsibility of individual Christians, if they had been doing that for the entire time of this sexual revolution, which I guess really took off in the 1960s, then we would have been owning every election ever since then. Because Christians would have been putting their faith into the political sphere by doing really the most simple thing possible, which is just bubbling a circle on a ballot that advocates more, the most consistent um, party or politician um, for your faith. And so not only could we have ended abortion decades ago, um, but we would have millions of new believers in the church um, who had been discipled with the full counsel of God because they weren't aborted in the womb because the church had spoken on their behalf. And so, of course, abortion is happening with the permission of the church. And so if this, if this concerns you, if you were concerned with Andrew Cuomo lighting New York Towers Pink in celebration of a piece of legislation in 2019 that legalized abortion through point of birth in the state of New York. If you're concerned with the fact, Christian, that California has murdered more babies since 1973 than the entire population of Canada, then your marching orders are to begin obeying your Savior's marching orders in the first place. And our Savior summarized those marching orders for us. Scripture says that all the law and the prophets hang on two commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Is the unborn our neighbor? Well, if they're a human, they're a neighbor. And scripture makes that very clear. So how are you to love a neighbor that it is currently legal to kill and whose deaths you're forced to fund? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to love pre-born image bearers. And that's why I'm on board with many different manifestations of ministry within the pro-life movement. However, what would be the first and most important way to love a neighbor that it was legal to kill? I know, make it illegal to kill them. 
pass laws that protect them. If it was legal to kill conservatives, guess what? I think the most important thing I would want you to do on my behalf is to make it illegal to kill conservatives. I, I would want to have laws passed that say I'm protected. Um, that's obviously the first and most important way to love our pre-born neighbors. And so that means voting. And that means abandoning our obsession as Christians with avoiding partisan labels. I don't want to be political. It means to get rid of that idol because it is an idol. Um, and here, here's how I know it's an idol, Megan. The people who say, I, I didn't vote for Trump or I don't get involved in politics because if I do, um, some woke leftist might not be as open to hearing the gospel because they'll be turned off by my partisanship. The same people who say that they're compromising their witness by getting involved in politics are not concerned with how their witness has been harmed by not advocating for the young boy. Right. Uh, right? I know many pagans and leftists who might say, I have no respect for the Church of Christ or Christians in America because if they believed what they told me they believed, which is what? Uh, that they worship a preborn human who was fully God and fully man and entered his human history in a womb and allowed himself to be murdered. Um, so that mankind could have his sins forgiven and be redeemed. If those Christians really believed that, um, they, would be, they would be the biggest political hacks I know, because they would be getting involved in politics to end the slaughter of children that, according to their religion, they would believe would be not just humans, but would be bearing the image of their God. Right. Like, if Christians believed that, they would be involved in politics to stop the genocide of, of children that they believe are image bearers. Many leftists view the church like that. They say, well, they're, they're silent on abortion. Therefore, whatever witness they have for Christ, I don't want to hear that. They're not consistent. They're hypocrites. So the, the people who say, I can't go full Trump, Megan, and I can't vote Republican. I can't, you know, I can't preach from my pulpit how you should vote as a Christian because I'm going to harm my witness. have never once in their entire life been concerned with that witness when it comes from the other side because of their silence. So if, if you're willing to abandon your, the idol that you've made, Christian, maybe, out of, out of your witness, which really just means, well, my leftist friends still like me. If you're willing to abandon that idol, then your marching orders from your savior are quite clear. Love your neighbor. You see, the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan walked by on the other side of the road when there was a bleeding victim right there, right? And yeah. said, I might be anti-street mugging. Oh, let me put this another way. I might be pro-life, um, but I'm kind of busy right now and I'm busy preaching the gospel. I might be anti-street mugging, Oh, look, there's a bleeding victim right there. Um, I have to go preach my sermon in preface. It was, the, it was the Good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, because Jews and Samaritans hated one another, who saw a bleeding victim. And guess what, Megan? He didn't walk up to him and go and look down and say, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. <laughs> he saved his life. Okay, he saved his life. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He put him on his own donkey. So he had to walk. He took him to the nearest inn. He nursed him back to health. And then he just told the innkeeper, I have to go now. But guess what? Um, here's a blank check. And when I come back, I'm going to pay you for any other costs that accumulated and caring for this leading victim while I was gone. Um, yeah, that's the gospel uh, with feet. Okay, that's not just a, an orthodox gospel that preaches right belief, but it puts it into action. And I think maybe our Holy Scriptures have something to say about that, Megan. I think it's something like, uh, uh, I will know you by your works. A good tree does not bear bad fruit. A bad tree does not bear good fruit. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Let us not love in word and deed, but with actions and in truth. Yeah, I think maybe the Bible has something to say about that. And so the Good Samaritan sacrifices his time, his energy, and his money to love a bleeding victim. The unborn is the greatest bleeding victim in the world um, because millions of preborn children have been murdered worldwide already since January 1. 
and we kill over a million babies a year in the United States of America. Yeah, they're the greatest bleeding victim. That doesn't mean that there are others, but it does mean that they're the only bleeding victim that it's legal to kill mm-hmm. and suggest you're forced to fund. So yes, the best way to love that neighbor, Christian, would be to vote to make it illegal to kill them. And anyone with a semi-functioning prefrontal cortex would have to admit that you cannot do that. Love that pre-born neighbor by making it illegal to kill them, by voting for the very party responsible for committed to and profiting off of the killing in the first place. And so your marching orders are to vote to end the genocide of baby image bearers and, and not to be concerned with the fact that some people might say, uh, you're not whole life because I heard Trump cages children at the border, and so therefore you're actually not pro-life. So don't vote at all if you're really pro-life. No, no, no. You need to abandon these silly nets because human lives are on the line. Babies that it's legal to kill are on the line. Eternal souls right. whose who's plan, who's God's plan for, has been thwarted by abortion. So that's the first thing is, is, yes, to get involved in politics. Secondly, get 10 people to the polls with you every election for the rest of your life in local, congressional, and presidential. Because um, policies have consequences, and politicians represent policies. And if a politician who advocated for re-legalizing spousal abuse, actually, let's go with child abuse, would be morally unfit for leadership and would not receive the vote of hardly any American then his advocation of prenatal child abuse is just as disqualifying. Um, And so you need to get involved to save children. Secondly, you can't always wait for the politics. Uh, You have to involve that. Now, it's not an either or, it's a both and. You need to get political to save preborn image bearers. But also don't wait for the politics to be in your favor to save children. Save children now. If it was legal to kill infants and there was a new infanticidal arm of Planned Parenthood, you would obviously become a Republican hack if the Republican Party was the only party trying to make infanticide illegal. But you would also be outside of the centers that were killing infants um, because it was being done legally and you could actually save their lives by intervening. And so this is why my friends at Love Life in Charlotte, North Carolina do such incredible work. Their goal is to put a Christian witness outside every abortion clinic in the country. Why is that so significant? Because studies have shown that roughly 80% of women who are driving into the parking lot to park, to walk into the abortion clinic, will drive around and leave if there's Christians outside praying. Not yelling and screaming, that's hardly, that's hardly anyone in the country, it's, it's a minority of, of people who are pro-life, but just they're praying with signs that we're here to help you. Now, what does that tell you, Megan? It, it tells us that eternity is written on the heart of man and God's reign falls on the just and the unjust. Because even a woman who is at such a low, scary point in her life that she has rationalized in her mind, paying a hitman to kill her child, still has shame associated with being seen walking into a clinic. So that's a still small voice that's telling her don't do this. And so if 80% of women almost will turn around and not tell their babies there's Christians outside. What if we put Christians outside these centers every day they performed abortions at every clinic in the country? Let me tell you something. We would bankrupt the abortion industry in a matter of months or years, and the politics would soon follow. So the church could save these children if we wanted to, if we were willing to wake up, advocate for God's pre-born image bearers, and abandon our idolatrous obsession with with, with not harming our witness. So those are your marching orders. It's time to put boots on the ground. It's time to get off the bench. It's time to embrace a comprehensive Christianity and not a compartmentalized one. 
that says, yes, I'm supposed to be a steward of all the things God has given me, but not my vote, apparently, in a constitutional republic where you're the most powerful political entity in human history because we the people are in control and we choose who governs by our consent. Get involved in that process because other Christians bled and died to secure those liberties for you. And if we're not willing to secure those for preborn image bearers and future generations, this entire American experiment is going to erupt into flames. And I think that brings up a good point because I think there's a lot of people who are disillusioned right now going, well, look, my vote doesn't even count anymore because of what has happened in the last election. So there's no chance I give up. But that brings up the point of we cannot be apathetic and we cannot give up surrender because this is our mission. This is our calling. And yes, the times are going to be difficult, but my goodness, that does not mean that we step out of it. That's actually when we step into it and we can see God at work. I'm sure you see that um, on the front lines with your work. Yeah, I mean, apathy is deadly. Apathy is deadly. Um, and apathy is, is uh, in, in large supply right now. <laughs> um, the truth saying, ah, man, I just don't like Trump and his personality, so I'm just going to disengage from the political battle. Guess what? That's exactly what the other side wants. They are having a field day when we do that. And some, some pundits believe, right, Megan, that the, the Georgia Senate seats that we lost um, may have been due to a number of conservatives and registered Republicans in Georgia who bought this ridiculous, you know, um, recommendation from Lynn Wood uh, that we shouldn't vote because we can't trust the results. I mean, that's exactly what the other side wanted, was for us to be disillusioned by the presidential results. And so say, ah, my voice and vote doesn't really have, uh, you know, doesn't have any meaning, so I'm just going to disengage. I mean, uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue uh, didn't lose by a whole lot. I think Kelly Leffler lost by quite a bit more, but David Perdue by a thinner margin. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that could have been due to apathy, to just re to conservatives in Georgia saying, I just, you know, whatever, my vote doesn't mean anything. That's exactly what the other side wants. So, yes, we need to fight for election integrity. Um, I, mean, so, I mean, we're just violating their state constitutions, and, and our courts wouldn't even take up the, the, the lawsuits. So, yes, that's a battle. That's a different one. That's, an, that's a very important one. Um, because how are we going to vote to make abortion illegal if, if we can't even trust the voting system? So all of that's important. But to give up because you're disillusioned um, is, is a deadly mistake. Um, and so we need to activate Christians to get involved. Frankly, Megan, I'm at the point now to where I'm beginning to adopt the Bonhoeffer strategy. Hmm. And here's what, here's what I call the Bonhoeffer strategy. He labeled himself and the Christians in Germany the confessing church. Okay, that was what him and Martin E. Moeller and Everhard Besky called themselves, the confessing church. I want you to think about how scandalous it was Themselves that at least in, with ability by calling themselves the confessing church. What was the insinuation by saying that? The insinuation is that if you were a German Christian or church who couldn't get involved to end the genocide of Jews, that you might not be confessing the real Christ. You might not be confessing real Christianity. Right. This is what Bonhoeffer later called cheap grace. Cheap grace is yeah. is preaching the gospel without repentance it's preaching jesus without disciples short it's it's a christianity without jesus christ is what and he called confessing christianity confessing church costly grace that there was a costly grace to what christ did and that and that 
it spells duty for the Christian. And, and that the Holocaust happened on the watch of the church in Germany. And so Bonhoeffer drew a spiritual and political line in the sand, Megan, and said, in short, if you're either on our side to protect Jewish image bearers who are being genocided, you're either on our side to engage and stop this Holocaust, or you're on the side of genocide. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's like a pretty gnarly thing to do. And, and let me give you a quote from him verbatim, just so your, our listeners don't think I'm misrepresenting him. He said that silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act, and God will not hold us guiltless. So if there were any truth to those words, that there's no such thing as political neutrality on the genocide of innocence, that there's no such thing as God saying, it's fine, it's fine. I mean, because you weren't actively um, uh, sort of supporting the genocide, you were just silent, you were just neutral, so that's okay. No, Proverbs 24.11 says, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And, quoting Proverbs 24, and if you say, uh, Lord, we do not know about this, <laughs> it says, does not he who made your life know it, does not he who sees your heart know it, and will he not judge man according to what he has done? Ooh, whoa. So if you pretend to not know about it and just say, no, I'm just kind of neutral, God sees and he knows and he's going to judge you. So if there were any truth of Bonhoeffer's words then, then they're certainly true today. And so I think it's time for the church in America, Megan, to begin to draw a similar, a similar spiritual line in the sand. Mm -hmm. Yes, that does question the faith of our brothers and sisters who either are silent on the genocide of Jews because of the, or of, of unborn children because of their witness, or worse yet, they're actually campaigning for um, <clears throat> Lecrae, campaigning for the very party and politicians who are promising to protect the right to kill children in a womb where your savior entered human history is. We need to draw this line in the sand and say you're either on our side to end the, the greatest genocide in human history of little babies, eternal souls knit together in the womb by God, or you're on the side of genocide. That, right. that there's, actually, there's, no, there's not a gray area. There's not a political or spiritual neutral area. Not on genocide there isn't. Maybe on uh, you know, other disputes like our favorite flavor of ice cream or the practicing of gifts in the church, you know, maybe there can be a gray area. Not on ripping off arms of babies there's not, especially when it's legal and you have the political power still to make it illegal. So I guess that would be sort of my message to those who are apathetic is listen, your savior tells you to hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And if you say, we did not know about this, therefore it's okay because of my witness. God sees your heart and he knows and he's going to judge you. And that should frighten all of us. Yeah, it's an uncomfortable truth, but my goodness, that's the, a biblical worldview. I mean, that's what scripture says. And if we can't be standing for the dignity and sanctity of all life as a Christian, what else are we going to stand for that has to be central to it? And I know that you've talked a lot about that. So, you know, we don't have, I, I could talk to you forever just because you've got such great wisdom and insight and you teach Christians how to be able to speak to these issues because we have to be able to give a witness and we have to be able to come at it from a winsome, um, confident stand. How do people find out more about your work and learn more about how to take better steps to be an active pro-life Christian. Yeah, amen. Um, well, you can uh, subscribe to my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber, as Reagan once said, I've noticed that everyone before abortion has already been born. So we are, in fact, all 
unaborted human beings. Everyone who's pro-choice is glad that their mother was not. Let's just put it that way. So we're all unaborted. And I just want to unpack those ideas, talk to you about what's happening in the country and the world, why these things matter, why you should care, um, and equip you to engage. And so subscribe to that podcast. You can watch it on YouTube or listen to it anywhere that you, you get your podcast. And I promise you, if you listen to that once a week for a few months, you're going to be flipping around like a pro-life ninja, uh, graciously destroying every protest argument you've ever heard, <laughs> therefore being a better witness and advocate um, for the freeborn. First Peter tells us to always be prepared to give a defense to those who ask us for the hope that we have. Um, if we should be prepared to give a defense of the gospel, we should also be prepared to give a defense to how the gospel informs how we view other moral topics. That's how the Christian world um, Our organization is Life Training Institute. You can find more about us at prolifetraining.com. Um, you can book me or one of our speakers. I'm the West Coast, um, but we, I, we all travel all around the country. You can go to my website, stephruber.com, um, to, to read my blog or to, to learn um, further. Um, and then our, uh, my boss, Scott Klusendorf, has written an incredible book called Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture, uh, probably one of the more accessible books on pro-life ideas and apologetics um, that still dives deep into ideas, but very accessible to the layperson. Um, and then um, I would say get involved um, with a local pregnancy resource center or pro-life organization. Uh, donate your time, your energy, and your money like the Good Samaritan did to save these things. That's awesome. And we've included some of those links that people can follow to find you again, Seth Gruber. And then if you can go to My Faith Votes and find information, we, we actually have a whole site dedicated to becoming a better pro-life advocate from praying to contacting your elected officials to encourage them to stand for life, to resources and organizations that you can get involved in, and even resources if you have had an abortion in the past to find healing and to deal with the shame that's deep down because I think that's often not addressed in this issue of pro-life and we could spend another whole hour just talking about that but just like like you said calling to repentance not only individually but the church and us as Christians to stand for life so we've got all those resources you can visit myfaithvotes.org and you'll find those there I want to end with one thing, um, Seth, because I thought this was very unique, but you have a new daughter who was born in December, and her name is Annie Brave, and I love her middle name. There's got to be some meaning to that, so tell us about being a dad and how that equates into your perspective in talking about the issue of life and her name. Yeah. Well, you know, we started this conversation about uh, talking about words and why they matter, yeah. right? And, and words have meanings. So we'll uh, we'll bookend uh, with that same point. Uh, names have meaning, and, uh, and they're important. And you read throughout Scripture how important names are. I mean, you know, frequently when God tells someone who, what they're named, and you learn someone's name, it, kind of, it also tells you what it means. Um, so my name Seth means appointed one or replacement. And why why is that? Because Cain killed Abel, and I was a replacement, right? <laughs> But it also means uh, appointed one. Um, and, and yes, I do believe I've been appointed um, to this topic and to this issue. Um, our firstborn name is Cedar Justice, um, because justice matters, and, and God is the only one who's perfectly just. And uh, a country that enables and legalizes the slaughter of innocents is not a just society. Mm -hmm. uh, and it would be just to protect every human being, regardless of where they're located or how dependent they are. Um, now, I'm not, you know, I'm not 
telling my children what career path they have to take. That's up, that's up to them and that's up to God. But, um, you know, words have meanings. And so our firstborn is named Peter Justice. Um, and there's a whole spiritual theme with the Peters of Lebanon in scripture as well. And then our daughter is named Annie Brave. And I think more so than any other time, um, the church is going to have to get brave and Christians need to get brave um, because we have the Holy Spirit on our side. We have God on our side. Um, if you want to read about brave acts of Christians, read the acts of the disciples if you want to go back to the early church or just look at heroic Christian figures like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like William Wilberforce. Um, and bravery is in short supply right now, while cowardice is in large supply. Um, and so we want to raise our children um, to understand um, where our rights come from. They come from the prenatal God, um, fully God and fully man, when he was a zygote in Mary's womb. Uh, that's where our rights come from. And this is the only country that has put into our entire documents and founding documents and ideals the belief that that's where rights come from. And so these governments are instituted among men to recognize and protect those rights. That's the whole purpose of this government. That's a privilege and a blessing. It's going to take courage and it's going to take bravery to stand up for those rights in an, in an increasingly hostile environment that very much would like to target Christians. Um, maybe not um, violently yet, but we may not be far away unless we wake up, get brave, get courageous, recognize that we have all that we need from God to defend life, liberty, and truth. And so and that's what we want to raise our children to recognize and understand. And we want to instill in them uh, that by what we call them. Wow, what a conversation with Seth Gruber. If you'd like to find Seth's podcast, it's called Unaborted. If you'd like to learn more about how to become a pro-life advocate, you can visit prolifetraining.com. That's the website for the Life Training Institute. Again, prolifetraining.com. And we at My Faith Votes have created our own site for resources to be able to be equipped and informed on the pro-life issue. You can visit myfaithcares.org for more information. Again, that's myfaithcares.org. Dot org for more information. Thanks for listening.